0: Uh, I'll encourage you to take a copy of the scriptures and turn to Colossians chapter 3, the passage we just heard read for us. I think for just a moment we need to acknowledge the reality of distractions in life. Isn't that true? Sometimes there are just distractions that can get our mind off of what's at hand. And uh, I, I think it's okay for us to acknowledge in this space, this particular morning, distractions are just a part of life, and that's okay. Uh, and uh, we get to move forward now and look at the Word of God, and uh, thankful for that. So now um, I'm going to uh, point to, uh, there we go, I think we are on now. I'm um, going to point to a picture on the screen. This is uh, Papillion, Nebraska. Some of you know that uh, Elizabeth and I spent two years, uh, the last two years of our lives living in Nebraska, and one of those years we spent in this quaint little small town papillion, just south of Omaha. It's basically connected to uh, the only other significant city in the state of Nebraska. Uh, It was uh, listed by Money Magazine in 2015, believe it or not, as the second best small town to live in in America, second best small town. And of course, they had certain qualifications that it had to meet in order to be listed even in the top 10. And Papillion was a very, very nice town, Uh, especially at Christmas time. Uh, You'll see this next picture. They just wrapped all of the trees downtown in thousands of lights, and it was really pretty to walk through the downtown in the very, very, very cold Nebraskan winter. But the reality is Liz and I couldn't wait to leave Papillion. Second best small town by Money Magazine 2015 to live in in America, and we couldn't wait to live, uh, to leave. So that brings up an interesting question. What makes a community, any community, attractive? What makes a community like a city or a town a compelling place to live in? But let's move beyond just thinking of a place to a community as a people. What makes a community a compelling people? I think one straightforward answer to this is simply it needs to have what you're looking for, right? That's what makes a community compelling. But for just a moment, let's back up and think about this from our context as a local church. What makes a community of faith compelling to others? When we think of a church community that's called by God to live on mission, to engage in the Great Commission, to be missional in all that we say and all that we do and all that we are, what makes a church community compelling? Well, as we open to Colossians chapter 3, we are beginning to see an answer to that question. You may remember back in chapter 3 verses 1 through 4, Jeff just read it for us moments ago, Paul says that the believer has died to the old world, the the broken world that is not submitted to the lordship of Christ. That world that is marked by all of the old realities and values and priorities. And the believer has died to that and has been raised with Christ in the heavenly world, a place characterized by heavenly realities, perfection and beauty. And the necessary consequence of that is even though or even while we are raised with Christ in glory, right now in this moment, we are still living life in a broken world. So a consequence is that we are to seek heavenly realities even as we live life on earth. So then in verses 5 through 11, Paul says that because we have died to the old world and therefore are to seek these new realities, if that is true and if we're going to live on mission, we must lay aside the old world manner of living. So following Jesus in our space and time, in our culture, looks like normal, everyday postures and practices. But in reality, these postures and these practices in any culture, at any point in history, are actually quite radical. They're quite unordinary. Because following Jesus looks like taking off the old clothes of sexual immorality. It looks like getting rid of divisive, angry, slanderous communication that is so prevalent in our culture. Living in heaven realities means we lay aside the sinful prejudices that so mark our existence before being brought into Christ. So he says, put all these things away, up through verse 11. But thankfully he doesn't end there because now he's going to move on to the positives. Remember, he he ended verse 11 with Christ is all and in all, and he moves on and says, therefore, put on certain things. So he begins to move to specific relationships within the Christian community. And let's be clear, if we're going to live on mission as a church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, then we need to key into these positives. The picture he paints is of a compelling community, missional not just in the gospel that they espouse, not just in gospel facts, but they are missional in a relational beauty. Missional in gospel content that we espouse, but missional also in the relational beauty that we ought to cherish so the question i want us to ask one another this morning not just me to you but you to me and us to one another is this this is our big idea in the form of a question are you meaningfully engaged with jesus in promoting and protecting a compelling community of relational beauty Are you meaningfully engaged with Jesus in promoting and protecting a compelling community of relational beauty? See, Jesus calls us out of our hyper-individualism into a corporate existence, a corporate reality, the church. And as the community of Jesus, the, the big C church, if you will, believers from every tribe and nation and tongue and people group across the world gather in individual lowercase c churches, those communities ought to be marked by two things, doctrinal purity, but also relational beauty. Or we could say this, truth and grace. Both things are vital. If we're lacking in one area, We will not be a compelling community. And the reality is many of us in this room have experienced churches that are imbalanced one way or the other, haven't we? Unfortunately, churches are often marked by either grace or truth. Either little truth with a lot of grace or grace or very little grace With a lot of truth. Perhaps you've been into a church that's very serious about doctrine, yet feels dead emotionally. Intellectually, it's right on. You will be stimulated in your knowledge attending a church like this, but affections are often cold. The result is a church marked by some semblance of truth, but without the relational beauty, the grace, that is to accompany that truth. It builds intellectually stimulated individuals who are often self-assured in their knowledge and, frankly, not a whole lot of fun to be around often. But then there are other churches that perhaps are relationally vibrant. They are gracious, warm places to be a part of, but are soft on doctrine. Maybe you even heard, have heard churches say things like, Doctrine divides, love unites. And while these churches are friendly and warm, you may be there for a long time without hearing a message that gets to the core of the gospel. And so the result is a church marked by a kind of grace, but without truth. In contrast, the community of Jesus is to be a place, a compelling community that is marked both by resolute and unshakable joy in truth, along with beautiful and harmonious relationships of grace. So let me bring us back to the same question I asked just a few moments ago. Are you meaningfully engaged with Jesus in protecting and promoting a compelling community of relational beauty. So what I'd like us to do now is to look at our text and kind of unpack this together. We're going to discover three embraces that we need to make if we are to be a compelling community of relational beauty for the city of Chattanooga. Three embraces and then one effect if we make those embraces so embrace number one we embrace our position in jesus we embrace the pattern of jesus we embrace the practices of jesus and the effect is that we will demonstrate the power or the beauty the glory of jesus so embrace number one in order to be a compelling community let's embrace our position in jesus look at verse 12 Notice how Paul begins to talk about the positive. He says, Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly beloved. Three distinct descriptions God's chosen ones, holy, dearly loved. These three descriptions put together are not just verbal flowers. That Paul is tossing into his epistle hoping to make a certain word count. No, these are meaningful. These are three descriptions that God used throughout the Old Testament of a particular people group, the nation of Israel. And you remember, one of the heresies that the Colossian Church is being infiltrated with is that they needed not just Jesus, but they needed to go back to the Jewish traditions. They needed Jesus plus something. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. It's not Jesus and anything. It's Jesus, period. So you who are being told by these Jewish individuals, the, the actual ethnic people of Israel, you who are being told that by them that you need something more from their ethnicity, let me remind you of your position in Jesus. You are God's chosen ones. You are wholly set apart by God for Himself. And you are dearly loved. The reality is, some of you are here this morning in God's providence because you need precisely what I'm about to say in these next few moments. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you have embraced Him as your Lord and your Savior, God has chosen you for himself. God has set you apart in his grace for himself. All of these things are true, not because you are lovable, but rather because of Jesus. And so God dearly loves you. And friends, that is good news. God's love for you is not dependent upon how you feel about his love for you right now. God's love for you is not dependent upon your successes or your failures of the past week. God has set you apart for himself in Jesus. He has chosen you and he loves you. To paraphrase N.T. Wright, the fact that you have been positioned into the people of God by Jesus depends not on your goodness, but on God's grace. Not on your lovableness, but on his love. And friends, there is incredible freedom in, this ver- in these verses, in these phrases. It doesn't matter if you're following Jesus, or rather... It doesn't matter if, for following Jesus, you have been rejected by your family because you've been chosen by God. It doesn't matter if you haven't been specifically set apart for any project or team or assignment at any point in your life because God himself has set you apart for himself. And while you may feel like following Jesus is isolating and very lonely in our current cultural moment, hear the voice of Jesus to you this morning. You are dearly loved. And that is good news. So a compelling community embraces its position in Jesus. But number two, in order to be a compelling community, let's embrace the pattern of Jesus. Look at verse 12 again. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Now, imagine with me for just a moment that you have had one outfit since you were a young adult one outfit to your name. You wear those clothes sleeping, working, working out, playing. No matter what you do, you are wearing these clothes. Now, imagine everyone around you in this room also has just one pair of clothes to their name since they were a young adult. Think about how unappealing those clothes would be after 15 or 35 or 65 years of life. And now imagine that if we all only had one pair of clothes, how would that change this space this morning? What might this smell like in here this morning? Would, would, that be, would this be an attractive place? And then imagine this. Imagine how joyful and excited you would be if after 15 or 30 or 50 years of wearing the same outfits, some wealthy individual comes to you and tells you they have donated their once-worn, pristine set of clothes from their closet. Would you be excited? I think probably. Would you hesitate for a moment to accept them and wear them? Well, maybe only to get a shower before you put them on. So catch this. The list we just read replaces the two lists of idolatry and sin that we already walked through in the beginning of Colossians chapter 3. Because we are in Christ, we take off our old clothes that indicate our old nature. And we put on a different set of clothes that have provided for us by Jesus. And these clothes that we put on are well-worn, beautiful hand-me-downs. They are lavish hand-me-downs from the Son of God, the King of kings, who left his throne in heaven, took upon himself humanity for our sake so that we might one day share in his glory. As Goldsworthy reminds us, if we are Adam's, then we express Adam's nature. But if we're Christ's, then we express Christ's nature. So what do these new clothes look like? What is the pattern of the Lord Jesus? Well, number one, put on compassion, he says. Compassion is a deep sensitivity to the needs and the sorrows of others. It's an understanding sympathy with others that affects our innermost being. And a compelling community is marked by this heartfelt compassion for those within the body, but also for those without the community of faith. It is the quality that allows us to truly weep with those who weep and also rejoice with those who rejoice. And so we see this in our Lord Jesus, don't we? We see our Lord on his way to be crucified, the week Of his crucifixion, stopping, pausing, looking over the city of Jerusalem, and doing what? Weeping. Moved with compassion. We see it in Jesus as he weeps at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. Number two, we're to put on kindness. This is an outward facing grace. It's a kindness that reflects the goodness and the benevolence of God. He's been kind to us, so we show that same kindness to others even when it's least deserved. Basic kindness is absent from much of our world today. And if you doubt that, spend 15 minutes on Twitter. But in the compelling community community that Jesus is building, kindness is essential. We show one another the same kindness and goodness that God has poured out upon us. Number three, we put on humility. If kindness is outward-facing, humility is an inward-facing grace. N.T. Wright describes it as the Christ-like attitude towards oneself, supremely exemplified in Jesus' readiness to admit his, omit his own rights, which led the Son of God to the Incarnation and the Cross. Omitting our own rights. Humility is not natural. It is a supernatural grace which God works into us progressively as we embrace it actively. Kelvin described humility as this, laying aside haughtiness and high-mindedness and claiming nothing for oneself. Claiming nothing for myself? It does not sound very attractive to me. It sounds painful. I actually don't like the sound of that in my flesh. But then we see Jesus, the Son of God, the incarnate God, entering the city of Jerusalem, the city that God himself had set his name upon to be a place where all of the nations would come and worship the one true God, our Lord enters that city not on a, a litter carried by slaves and servants, not on a white stallion, on a donkey. The very week he would be lifted up, and crucified, naked, on a cross. Claiming nothing for myself seems like a heavy weight to carry until I consider the fact that I have died with Christ. And I've been raised with Christ. And right now, I am seated with Christ in glory. So why should I, why should we If that's our reality, feel compelled to claim any rights or privileges before others right now when we right now are resurrected with Jesus at the Father's right hand. What other privileges do we need? What other rights can be afforded to us that outshine that? So we put on humility. And then, number four, we put on gentleness. One man describes this as the outworking of humility on one another's or on one's approach to other people. It's the opposite of rudeness or arrogance. Implicit in this word is the reality of need or weakness on the part of a brother or sister which is actually a pretty safe assumption, right? Can we just name that? We are all weak. We are all needy. Every single one of us. We don't have to put on airs. We don't have to walk into this room with a facade that we've got everything put together because we don't. And gentleness recognizes that. We are all weak, we are all needy, sometimes in ways we're aware of, sometimes in ways we are unaware of, and gentleness absorbs this reality in its dealings with others. Gentleness doesn't ignore the weakness, the neediness, the sinfulness. It doesn't pretend it's not there, rather it takes it into account. So if we think about those last two descriptions, humility and gentleness, where do we find these in their perfection? If you were to probe the deepest places of the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ, as Dane Ortland reminds us, what would we find? Gentleness and lowliness. Humility. He says, "I am gentle" And lowly of heart. Jesus is approachable to you and gentle when approached by you. And some of you need to hear that this morning because this week has been a week where your weakness, your sinfulness has just been so clearly evident in your mind and you've walked through these doors today practically dragging yourself in, fearful of the condemnation of God. And if you are a child of God, the Lord Jesus Christ welcomes you to approach him. And he will meet you with nothing but gentleness and lowliness and grace. And what he's doing right now in these moments in this church and in other churches across Chattanooga and across the world is he is building compelling communities marked by both humility and gentleness. Number five, put on patience. Patience is the exact opposite of the sort of vengeful anger that we saw back up in verse five. The wrath that exacts vengeance on others. It's the effect of humble kindness having its way on our reaction to other people. It renounces resentment and anger. So perhaps you're hearing this pattern of living life after Jesus. And part of you says, this way of living actually sounds kind of weak. It sounds kind of sissy. And in the eyes of the culture, which is constantly only looking out for number one, where the only sort of strength that is valued is the strength that you conjure up within yourself to press forward over all obstacles, even if those obstacles are people, there's not much to be desired here. Or is there? Because living this way, after the pattern of Jesus, in the marketplace of life, Takes an uncommon strength that only Jesus himself can provide. This list is incredibly countercultural in every way, just like Jesus. And so, when we consider it that way, does it actually sound weak or does it sound wonderful? Who among us, aware of weaknesses and failures and sins, doesn't want to be viewed with compassion by others? Who doesn't long among us to be treated with kindness, not with harshness? Who among us doesn't flourish when surrounded by humble, approachable people who are gentle and patient with us? So when we view it in this light, this is not weakness. This is wonderful. This is true strength. And so for Sojourn to move forward as a missional, compelling community in the city of Chattanooga, we first embrace our position in Jesus. We embrace the pattern of Jesus. And number three, we embrace the practices of Jesus. Look at verse 13. Bearing with one another, forgiving one another, if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also are to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ to which you were also called in one body rule your hearts so the practices of Jesus are simply four here. We bear with one another. I love how Paul is a realist. People are quirky. Did you know that? Y'all are quirky. Did you know that? I am quirky. Just look at the person next to you and think about how quirky they are. People are quirky. Part of the uniqueness is the diversity of our quirks. But it's not just my quirkiness that you people have to put up with. It's also my weaknesses. It's also my sin. It's my failures. It's my hypocrisy. It's my weakness that slows us down, my sinfulness that trips us up. And Paul says we are to bear with one another. And in God's goodness, Jesus, through Paul, says, when, not if, when you encounter a brother or sister that is immature or tiresome or stuck on some hobby horse or seemingly full of themselves, you bear with them. You endure them. You tolerate them. As N.T. Wright again words it restrain your natural reactions towards odd or difficult people. Let them be themselves. And I say that to you as a person who recognizes he is an odd and a sometimes difficult person. And a compelling community bears with one another in our oddities and in our personal quirks. Practice number two, we forgive one another. This is repeated two times in these verses. Forgiveness is essential to the life of a follower of Jesus. And again, I love the realism of Paul here. Something is implicit. If we are actually living in community with one another, if I know you and you are known by me, and the same is true, vice versa, in true meaningful ways, then we're going to end up sinning against one another. That's just life in a broken, fallen world. We're going to have plenty of opportunities to sin against one another. And there will be times when that sin is not just one way. Blame is shared by either party. And when we have a just occasion to quarrel among ourselves, we don't carry it out. Even if we have a grievance against another, Paul says, we don't lean into the quarrel. Rather, we move towards one another in love, in humility, in kindness, in gentleness, in grace, and we forgive. Followers of Jesus don't cancel one another, unlike our culture. Our world is dominated by a culture of salvation by works. In this way Obey the cultural norms to stay in the good graces of the culture. Or be canceled. Salvation by works. Stay in the good graces of the culture. Don't cross any lines cross a line, cross a boundary, you're out of luck. Swimming in this toxic water creates nothing if not fear. But the church has the opportunity to be a radically different community a community where the sinner in need of forgiveness is welcome to experience the forgiveness of God and where the individual who has sinned against others finds themselves forgiven by others. Those same other people who themselves have been forgiven by God and who know themselves to be in need of forgiveness on a virtual hourly basis minute-by-minute basis. And I can't help but think of the story of Peter here. Remember, Peter was one of Jesus' disciples and he really thought he was elevating the game above the religious people around him when he asked Jesus this question. How many times should I forgive my brother who sins against me? up to seven times? It's kind of an odd number to just pull out. Why seven times? Well, the religious people of Peter's day said you were required to forgive up to three times. But boy, once they hit the fourth time, you don't have to forgive anymore. So Peter's like, well, I'm I'm following Jesus. I'm hanging out with with the Messiah, the Son of God. Obviously, it's going to be more than three. So Jesus, how many times do I need to forgive those who sin against me? Seven times? (laughs) And what is Jesus' response? I don't say to you seven times. How about seven times 70? And the point there is not the numbers, the numerical value. The point is there is no limit to the forgiveness expressed and received within a compelling community being built by Jesus. And friends, that is really good news. Our Father has forgiven us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the family of God, we get to share that same forgiveness until Jesus comes. Until there is no longer any need for forgiving one another because sin is no more. But how is this type of posture possible towards one another? Well, because of the next practice. It says practice loving one another. He says this is the supreme virtue that gives context and durability to all the others. The only way we can forgive one another over and over and over and over again is when we love one another. And love is not a feeling. Love is a sacrificial, sacrificial choice to seek the best for the object who is loved. And the command to love one another is repeated no less than 21 times in the New Testament. Love is without question essential as we follow Jesus. And then finally, we practice God's peace ruling in our hearts. We've been reconciled to God. We've been made right with the Father against whom we've committed cosmic treason. We have peace with God, with the God who ought to, by his right... Be in eternal enmity against us. So, no matter what our circumstances are pain, suffering, difficulty, trial, injury, uncertainty that peace we have with God can reign and rule in our hearts. So what will happen if we as Sojourn Community Church of Chattanooga, Tennessee decide to embrace our position, decide to embrace the pattern of Jesus, and embrace these practices? Well, here we come to the one effect. We will demonstrate the power of Jesus. For a moment, let me just speak to those who call sojourn home. What we see in Colossians 3 is not possible without a deepening understanding of Jesus and a deepening understanding that Jesus and his gospel changes everything. It leaves nothing untouched. And so if we are to be missional, then it must be in a way that celebrates rich, orthodox doctrine adorned with relational beauty. The ability to love one another, to forgive one another, to bear with one another, to follow the pattern and practices of Jesus, these only come as you and I daily, regularly appropriate the gospel as we regularly live out of our union with Jesus. So friends, that's why week after week, we bring ourselves back to this place and we tell each other our family story over and over and over again because the gospel changes everything. And we do that through the liturgy. Every element of the liturgy is missional. We acknowledge truths about God. We acknowledge our weaknesses, our failures, our sinfulness, and we do that corporately, not individually and quietly, but we do that as a group, admitting, yes, I am one of those sinners. And then we receive assurance of the pardon that is ours through Jesus Christ, so that any outsiders among us who are not yet in Christ hear us being assured that our sins have been forgiven through Jesus. And then we pass that peace on to one another. It's not just some quaint, cute time that we're looking to fill four or five minutes of our service so we get out at a certain time and not at some other time. No, we connect with one another in meaningful ways, reminding one another that we are in Christ. And then we press into these realities in joyful praise of our Father as we sing together. And then in a few moments, we're going to gather around the table of the Lord and celebrate the fact that this bread represents the broken body of the Son of God. And that juice represents His blood poured out so that you and I can be the family of God. And all of that is missional. And when we leave the gathering and we enter into smaller spheres of interactions, whether that's our family or our life groups, we continue to live missionally by inviting in the outsider. That's just hospitality, right? Inviting others to come alongside us as we follow Jesus and allow them to experience our transformed selves and the transforming power of the Spirit. And we live before them in such a way that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace, of glory, of forgiveness, of freedom, that gospel is elevated. And it's elevated by this community of relational beauty. So for just a moment, now let me speak to the one who's listening to this, but you would consider yourself on the way out the door of Christianity you're just biding time, maybe until graduation, or maybe until you can just break it to your family that you're no longer a Christian. And perhaps as you're sitting here and you're evaluating why you're on the way out the door, it's because you have weighed in the balances that which has called itself Christianity, and you have found it wanting it just has not been compelling to you maybe it hasn't been compelling because of the hypocrisy you've experienced in the church maybe what you've experienced is just as power hungry just as brutal just as graceless just as proud as crooked as hypocritical as self-centered as anything outside the walls of christianity So can we just collectively acknowledge this morning, if that is your experience, you have been wronged. What you have seen is human depravity in the guise of religion. And no wonder Christianity is not compelling to you. But for just a moment... Even as we grieve with you in your experience, can I press against your assumptions? What if what you have experienced is actually the outward appearance of religion without the heart of the gospel? What if it's Christianity without Christ? What Paul lays out here is not some next level Christianity. It's not an optional add-on to the life of following Jesus. No, it is essential. It's not something to discard or that some will embrace and some will choose not to among the followers of Jesus. What Paul lays before us here is the heart of the gospel lived out in relational beauty. So if you choose to walk away from Jesus, because of what you've experienced in the church please understand that what you have experienced may not actually be the church of jesus interacting as jesus intended so friends this sort of compelling community described in these verses is a vision of reality worth pursuing It's the sort of community that's carried along by the power of Jesus into the world at large. A community shaped by rich, deep, orthodox truths centered on the gospel and a community that is continually giving itself to one another in relationally beautiful ways. So can I ask you once again, Are you meaningfully engaged with Jesus in promoting and protecting this kind of compelling community of relational beauty in the city of Chattanooga? Let's pray together. Father, as we have sat under your word together, no doubt there is both encouragement and a longing to experience this sort of community, while at the same time, a sincere acknowledgement in the heart of us, your followers, that we fail to live up to this sort of community more often than we care to admit. So Father, corporately in these moments, we acknowledge that and we repent. God, forgive us for not adorning your gospel in relationally beautiful ways among us. And we turn now in faith to Jesus that this sort of way of living life in community is possible by his power in union with him. Father, thank you for that. And Father, I pray for the one or the two who are seated here this morning who are at war within themselves. considering whether or not they ought to walk out of the church altogether or if there is actually something compelling about Jesus worthy of continuing to follow him. Father, I pray very specifically in these moments that you would use this compelling vision of a beautiful community empowered solely by the Lord Jesus Christ, enabled to live in such a way solely by his sacrifice, that this vision would capture and captivate hearts and minds. Lord Jesus, would you be glorified among us? Would you be pleased to build this sort of compelling community here at Sojourn for the glory of God and the good of our city. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.